0: Last Sunday, I spoke to you from the second verse of the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. I'd like to go back to that chapter in that book and look at the next verse, verse 3, this morning. As I mentioned last Sunday, the Song of Solomon is a very unique book, written obviously by divine inspiration, but God used Solomon to be the human writer. He wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. All three of these books are very unique within themselves. Solomon, we're told, in 1 Kings chapter 4 wrote 1,005 songs. But this is the song of songs here. Of the 1,005, 1,004 didn't make it into the Word of God. But this one did. I don't know what the subject matter and the categories all the rest of them would have fell into. But this one is very special because it really is a love story between a bridegroom and the bride, husband, wife but especially, I believe, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and our Savior himself. It's a book that shows a great desire to increase communion with the Lord, to enter into a more intimate relationship with him. We read the last verse of 2 Peter, and the Apostle Peter tells us that we should grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. It's important that we experience spiritual growth I think this is illustrated in the book of 2 Kings chapter 4 when you have the story of the great woman. Remember in the case where Elisha the prophet would come by and she would spend time with a man of God. And then later she spoke to her husband about doing something in addition to what they'd been doing by building a a room, uh, you know, next to the house, addition to the house. In that room she put a table, she put a chair, uh, she put a bed and she put a candlestick. The things that they need in that day and age, they need a table to sit down at and to eat, a candle, you know, the candlestick to give light, a bed for rest. She took it a step further. She wanted to do more for the man of God, but she benefited likewise because in all these conversations with the man of God, she learned more and more about God. And that's very important that we learn more and more about Christ. That's why the scripture should become part of your daily routine of reading the Word of God. Um, With the Grace Alone radio that's out here now, uh, it's such a tremendous blessing, 24/7, any time of day when you're in your car driving or at home, uh, you know, any of your tablets, even uh, with Alexa, if you have that, you can download this app and Any time of the day you can turn it on and you'll hear a Primitive Baptist message or you'll hear hymns being sung or the Word of God being read or devotion being read. Uh, It's just unbelievable uh, how easy this is and you have access to it 24-7. It goes around the entire world, around the entire globe and it's been a great success thus far. So i ask you to continue to pray uh, for that to continue to be a blessing to the Lord's people. So we should desire to draw closer to the Lord. In the book of James, chapter 4 and verse 8, we find where the writer says, Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to thee. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from thee. Now, and notice the two parts of that verse. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. In this case, when it comes to drawing, we're talking about something experiential. Before you'll ever have the desire to draw nigh to God, you must first of all be, have been drawn by God. John six forty four. the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. That means you're drawn from your state of nature, which is state of death, into a state of life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's sovereign power being exercised in your life, and you being one of God's elect, you being one of God's uh, children, object of his love and he draws you from that state again that you are in nature that gives you the desire then to draw nigh to him James says draw nigh to God and he will do what? he will draw nigh to you in this case you take the first step and then it says resist the devil you can't resist the devil unless you have a close walk with God so before you can resist the devil and he will flee from you you need to draw nigh to God When you draw nigh to God, God draws nigh to you, and Satan doesn't have a chance at that point. You're resisting the devil by doing that, and the message says, or James says, he shall flee from you. So this is what this book is all about. The words in it, the adjectives, the the metaphors, they're all superlatives. Uh, They all represent something. Every word is very, very important. It, It may seem like strange language to you when you read this book, but I can assure you, The Jews in that particular day knew exactly uh, what the language meant. So last Sunday, we spoke to even verse 2 when we find that the bride desired the kisses of the mouth of the bridegroom. Says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Says, uh, For thy kisses is better than wine. Notice, thy kisses. Thy love, brother, thy love is better than wine, expressed, of course, by the kisses she so desired. Thy love is better than wine. Now, we notice it's thy love. It was talking about God's love. And the only reason we love God, according to 1 John four nineteen, is because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. He first loved us in covenant before the foundation of the world. Gave us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His love was greatly manifested when he came into this world, took upon himself a body of human flesh, human nature with the exception of sin, lived for 33 and a half years a life that we could not live. He crossed all our T's, dotted all our I's, was willing to endure the uh, hardness of life, willing to endure the shame and rejection that he received. He was willing to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. All of that speaks of the greatness of his love that's better than wine. And so after this, she says, because of thine ointments, because of thy good ointment, notice the language here, thy good ointment, not just in ordinary ointment, but because of the sever of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love thee because of the sever, that's S-A-V-O-U-R. That word means a smell and odor. Now it's found about 88 times in the Bible, and probably 85 of those times is used in a very positive sense. The first time it's used is found in Genesis chapter 8. When you go to Genesis 8, you're going to find this is a chapter where Noah comes off the ark. The flood has taken place. Noah's built the ark. The flood has taken place. Noah and his family have found safety and refuge in the ark that was designed by God and Noah built according to divine specifications and now the flood is over and the waters have gone down and you find on a certain day where the Lord spoke to Noah and told him to him and his family to come out of the ark now put yourself in Noah's shoes you come out of the ark been on there for a long time experienced the flood what's the first thing now you're going to do you might say, well, I think the first thing we need to do is, is to build us a house, build us a dwelling place. You know, we, we need a shelter. That's the first thing that we need to do. From a natural perspective, I suppose you're correct. But that's how the natural mind functions. Noah didn't do that. The very first thing Noah did was to build an altar to God. And on that altar, he sacrificed those clean animals that he took upon the ark. You know, the animals took upon the ark, he took them two by two of the unclean, but he took them by sevens of the clean because he was going to need those animals not only for reproduction, but he was going to need some of those animals for sacrifice. And the Bible says that God smelled a sweet sever. This was pleasing to God. That sacrifice that Noah made on the altar went right up into heaven and was a sweet smell unto God. And that led into this statement right here. The last verse. Of Genesis chapter 8 The Lord said as long as the earth remaineth There shall be seed time and harvest There shall be cold and heat There shall be summer and winter Um, These things he says Will be here as long as the earth Remaineth There is coming a day when this earth will not remain But until that day comes There will be seed time and harvest The Lord promised that The Lord declared that There would be cold and heat there would be summer and winter. There would be night and day. The things that you have noticed and experienced your entire life, daylight, nighttime, wintertime, summertime, cold, heat, sea time, and harvest, has always been and always will be until the Lord comes again and time shall be no more and this earth will no longer remain. It came up as a sweet sever in the nostrils of God. He was pleased with Noah's sacrifice you'll find that all the burnt offerings that was made in the tabernacle, you know, that was the first piece of furniture. The seventh piece of furniture was the altar the burnt, where the burnt sacrifices was to be made. And when those offerings were made on that altar of burnt uh, sacrifices, it went up and it says it was a sweet sever unto God. Numerous times it's repeated, sweet sever unto God, a sweet sever unto God. We come over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and the Apostle Paul says, as ministers of the gospel, we are severs of life unto life and death unto death. A smell in the ministry to those who are alive is sweet, but those who are dead in trespasses and sins, that's not the case, he says. So the sever, the smell, the odor, and it's about every single time again, it's always a sweet sever unto God. The one exception is found in Ecclesiastes 10.1. Solomon wrote this. He says, As dead flies are, you know, in the apocryphal, send forth a stinking smell, so is a little folly unto him that's in reputation for wisdom and honor. In other words, a little folly is, there there are times that we, you know, uh, that's good to have a good laugh. But in the house of God, From the pulpits of different situations. Nothing wrong with saying something humorous. Nothing wrong with making a point uh, with a story or whatever that may cause you to to laugh at what is being said. But now we're not talking about, we're talking about folly. Here's somebody who's in reputation for wisdom and honor and what happens with a little folly in his life? It's just like a dead fly in the apocrity, the ointment of the apocryphy, And it says, it gives forth a stinking smell. It's just not appropriate, in other words. But generally speaking, this word is used in a very positive way, a sweet sever unto God. Now, because of the sever of thy good ointment. Notice the ointment under consideration here is a good ointment. Everything associated with God and His blessings upon us is described by the word good. You may have heard the saying that God is always good and God is good always. That's that's a true statement. I believe the Bible would back that up all the way. That God is good always and God is always good. In Genesis chapter 1 we have an account of the creation. And seven times in Genesis 1 you find the word good. When he made the light he said he saw it was good. When he made man from the dust of the earth he looked and he said it, it was good. Here's the very last thing he says. After six days of creation and God looked And he saw it was very good. Everything that God created was good and very good. We find the land of Canaan. Oftentimes, is referred to in the scripture not by its name of Canaan, but by two words, the good land. It's referred repeatedly in the word of God as that good land. It was a land that was filled with good things. It was a land of hills and valleys. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey, but it's called repeatedly that good land. It was a land that God chose specifically for the children of Israel where he would plant them in that land after taking them out of of Egypt, bringing them across the Red Sea, spending 40 years in the wilderness. Eventually they were planted in the land of Canaan. Could have gotten there obviously a lot sooner. They got to Kadesh Barnea in 11 days right there on the brink of crossing the river, but they sent the spies in the land. Another story, of course. Came back with the evil report. God judged them, gave them 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But eventually they made it into what? The good land. You got the land of Egypt. You got the wilderness land. Then you got the good land over here. They finally wind up in the good land that the Bible says that God blessed that land out of his good treasure in heaven with the former rains and the latter rains. And Isaiah, excuse me, Nehemiah and Ezra in their experiences always speak about the good hand of God. The good hand of the Lord was upon me. Why not just say the hand of the Lord was upon me? That'd be fine, wouldn't it? But he didn't just say the hand of the Lord was upon me. He says, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. The Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15, 15 he said, "Thou shall die in a good." He says, "Thou shall be buried with thy fathers in a good old age. Not just when you're old, but in a good old age, you'll be buried with your fathers." Genesis chapter 25. Abraham dies, and he's buried. And the Bible says Abraham died in a good old age. Abraham was 175. That's what I'm working on. That's a good old age. So why not use that for a target date? Right, 175. <laughs> He died in a good old age. Sometimes I'm wondering if there's any good in old age. You know what I mean? That's what I see in other people. Uh, but anyhow, uh, there are as good in, in all ages. I, trust me, I can assure you. So he died what? In a good old age. In a good old age. James chapter one, verse 17. James says, for every good gift and every perfect gift. What kind of gift? Good and perfect. Comes down from the father of lights. Whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The gift of life, the gift of the sun, the gift of the moon, the gift of the rain, the gift of family, the gift of love. Uh, You know, the list is endless, is it not? Every good gift and perfect gift comes from where? It comes from above. It comes from God above where there is no variableness. God is immutable. He does not change. Where there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good and every perfect gift. God is good. His hand is good. Here we find the ointments are referred to as good ointments because of thy good ointments. Now, when you think of this in a spiritual sense, we're going to think about the divine graces of God that come down upon us. And we'll say a little bit about that maybe a little bit later on. What was the purpose of the ointments? I thought uh, what Brother David and Sister Pam here brought to the church today fit right in what I want to speak about. But anyway, what about these ointments? They they were very, very important in that particular day. Now, when a man was uh, set aside as a priest or as a king or a prophet, he was always anointed. This was a signification. This was a public official declaration and recognition of this man as a prophet, as a priest, or as a king. We notice that Elisha, uh, when Elijah, just before Elijah was caught in a whirlwind and went into glory, that his successor was going to be a man by the name of Elisha. Elisha has been appointed of God, but before Elijah leaves, he anoints Elisha to be a prophet in his stead. When Aaron, you go to to the book of Exodus chapter 28, you're going to find beginning chapter 25 to end of the book, all the details about the tabernacle, beginning in chapter 28, you have all the details of the clothing of the high priest of that day. How, all the clothes that was given unto him was designed in heaven. <laughs> designer brands, Aaron wore designer brand clothes. I can tell you that. It was designed by God, designed by God in heaven. And uh, <clears throat> we find those clothes that he wore uh, set him apart from all others, of course, and he and his sons were anointed as the high priest. And then the very first king that Israel ever had was a man by the name of Saul. Saul, of course, was the people's choice. It was a bad choice. It was an improper choice. It was made based upon carnal thinking, based upon carnal observation. Yeah, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He stood out among all the people. He had all the physical attributes that you'd look for uh, in a leader. Uh, but they didn't, couldn't see his heart. They couldn't see his character. It was a bad choice. But the point is, he was anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel. The second king of Israel, a man named name of David. The word David means beloved. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, a man after God's own heart. And when David was made king, and he reigned for 40 years, he was anointed as king. His son Solomon, likewise. And then kings that followed after that, they were always anointed. Special anointing oil, by the way, according to divine specifications. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever held the office of prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, there were those who, again, occupied the office of prophet. Some occupied the office as king. Some occupied the office of high priest. But no man occupied all three. Jesus Christ did. I look over here in the book of Acts chapter 10 verse 38 and the Apostle Peter is speaking to Cornelius. And he said uh, that God anointed his son Jesus Christ with the Holy Ghost and with power. The Holy Ghost and with power. And he went about doing what? The word good pops up here. He went about doing good. Five words describe the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Bible writers here, gospel writers They give us a biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Apostle Peter summed up his life in five words. He went about doing good. But he was anointed by the Father with the Holy Ghost and with power. In the book of Luke, chapter 4, you find where the Lord, as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now notice Christ had a custom. It was he did this regularly, he did this faithfully. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, been my custom all my life, all my life. At the time I was just a baby, as I've told you many times, my mother had me the first part of the week, and I was in church in her lap on the next Sunday. That's where I spent one day out of seven my entire life with very, very few exceptions. I can name those exceptions with the palms of my hands, probably one hand. It was my custom. My mother and daddy had a custom. On the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, we went to the house of God. That was the custom. That was a biblical custom. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In this day, he's the guest speaker. In the synagogue, there was somebody in charge of the synagogue, and he would always hand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to someone, and they would read the scripture and expound it. That day, they gave give it to a man named Jesus. Jesus opens up Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus wrote Isaiah chapter 61. He didn't have to open up and read it. He wrote it. He says, the Lord hath anointed me. The Lord hath anointed me to preach glad tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, etc., etc. So we see here the Lord was anointed. In the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, how was this explained by the angel and to Mary? He said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the house shall rest upon thee. And that holy thing that shall be born into thee shall be called the Son of God. And then we find when Christ is baptized, uh, when he comes up out of the water, heavens open up and a voice rings out saying, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit coming down out of heaven and resting right on the Son of God. He was anointed right there. And the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. He was anointed by the Spirit of God. He was anointed by the Holy Ghost. He was anointed with power. He was anointed, uh, my friends, in his uh, virgin birth. He was anointed uh, there at his baptism. And I believe he experienced an anointing when he went to glory, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. All right, was he prophet? Well, Isaiah 61 says he is. And Luke chapter four says he is. The Lord God has anointed me to preach glad tidings to the meek. When you preach glad tidings to the meek, you tell them about something down the road in the future. For example, the second coming of Christ in the end of time. Yes, he indeed was a prophet. He told them on uh, several occasions, but we go to Matthew 16, 21, and the Lord Jesus Christ tells his disciples, he says, uh, the, I, shall be, I shall suffer at the hands of men, of the high priest and the, and the chief elders. Uh, so I shall suffer at their hands. And the scribes, and I shall be crucified, and then I shall be raised again after the third day. That was going to take place in about three years after he said it. The Lord said, Destroy this body, yet in three days I'll raise it again. Destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it again. Those who heard him say that thought he was talking about the natural temple. But he wasn't talking about the natural temple. He was talking about his body. Destroy it three days I'll raise it again. Yeah, he was a prophet. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1, says, let us consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's what? He's our high priest. says, let's consider him who was faithful unto him that appointed him as Moses was faithful unto him that appointed him. Here the gospel writer tells us Moses was a faithful man. But the Lord Jesus Christ is more faithful. He's faithful in perfection. Remember, Moses didn't enter into Canaan's land because he failed to sanctify God the second time when he was supposed to uh, speak to the rock, for water to come out, but instead of speaking to it, he smote it like he did the first time. He was judged for that, did not enter into Canaan's land. You'll never find one act of disobedience in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Hebrews 4.14, it says, See, and then we have a high priest that is passed into the heavens. He's talking about Jesus. He's a high priest. Where, where, what, what are you to do, Paul? He passed into the heavens. See, we have a high priest which passed into the heavens... Let us come boldly to the throne of grace and we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us hold fast our profession. We're encouraged to hold fast our profession here on the basis that our high priest is no longer on this earth. He's no longer in a barred tomb. Our high priest is in heaven. He passed into the heavens. Isn't that a kind of an interesting way to phrase it? He's just passed into the heavens. That's what you see in Acts chapter 1. 40 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he defied the very law of gravity and he just was lifted up from this earth in his own power and went right up into heaven. You know, I was just thinking uh, a day or two ago uh, about scriptures that uh, we preach that literally took place and yet sometimes it hardly stirs our emotions, hardly stirs our our feelings, I think, like it should. If I were to tell you this morning, uh, you know, I read in the paper where a preacher went to a cemetery and he had witnesses with him. He had reporters with him and they took a video of it and everything else that he actually called, called a man's name who was in the tomb and he called his name and that man came right out of the tomb. You think that caused a little stern excitement in the city of Nashville? You think you'd probably say, wow, I can't believe that. Are you sure? Is this authenticated? Yes, they got witnesses. We got video of it. We got ample proof. That man was dead, been dead about four days. And yet I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt of a man named Lazarus who been in the grave about four days and a preacher went to the cemetery and he had witnesses. And that preacher went to the cemetery and called his name personally and individually. He said, Lazarus, come forth. That actually took place. That literally took place. Lazarus was a literal man who literally died, who was literally buried, and he was literally raised from the dead by the voice of the Son of God. And yet I can preach that and yet we just accept it as information. I can preach about a man who laid down his life who was put into a barred tomb in a barred sepulchre for three days and three nights. And then he raised his own self from the dead and came forth out of there. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That really happened. That's not something made up. That's not a fable. That's not just some uh, story that somebody came up with one day. You know, to make a point, that literally actually took place. if it did not take place, then when we die, it's all over, Rover. If we die, that's all there is to it. But I do not believe when I die, that's all there is to it. I believe with all my heart, everything I got to believe in, that when I die, my soul and spirit will be right in the arms, the everlasting arms of my Savior, number one and my body be placed somewhere, wherever the family decides for it to go, I've told them to find a shallow, or a, kind of a deep ditch and throw the dirt on it and forget about it. You can use the money for better purposes. But anyway, I know they won't follow that. So wherever they put me, I, my body just stay there, but I believe with all my heart the Lord will come one day and speak my name and my body is coming out of that grave. Why do I believe that? Because a man... A lady in a grave for three days and three nights that represented me 2,000 years ago, and I believe He'll call my body out of the grave one day, be reunited, my soul and spirit in heaven is going to be my home eternally. I don't know why we don't get more excited about the truth of God's Word concerning these things. These things are actually true, they're literal, they're true. He's our high priest, He's passed into the heavens. What about King? In Zechariah 9.9, you got a prophecy of the Lord coming as just and having salvation, riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. That take place, according to the record, Matthew 21, it did. In Matthew 21, we find where the Lord tells the disciples, go into a city, go into the city, and you'll find uh, an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass, tied there, and you tell the owner of that, the Lord hath needed them. Now, you just think about it somebody approaches you and this is your animal and they say, uh, we need your animal because the Lord needs him. You're okay, take him, go ahead. That just normally wouldn't take place, would it? When we leave here today, somebody walks up to your car and says, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so needs some transportation. We'd like the keys to your car. Are you going to give it to him? I don't think you will. I don't think you will, but they gave it to him. And the Lord got on that animal, and the Bible of tells us it was an ass, a colt, a foal ass that never man had ridden. Never. He's not broke, in other words. Nobody's ever sat on this animal before, but Jesus Christ sits on him and rides him without incident right into the city of Jerusalem. And they wave the palm branches all before him as he comes riding into the Jerusalem. And they cry out, Hosanna to the name of the Lord. Bless he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They find here, our Lord of lords and King of kings comes riding into Jerusalem, not upon a, a great horse, not upon a, a white stallion of some kind. My Lord comes riding in upon an ass, the colt the fold of an ass, a symbolic of a poor man's travel. He comes riding in. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth was our prophet. He's our priest and he's our king. He's still all three of those things today. Now he says, because of that good ointments, I believe these are the divine graces of God. Everything you read in the four Gospels concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for His people, I believe he's still doing for His people today. When you see these scenes of the compassion of Christ, when there were the great multitudes, and the disciples wanted to, to you know send them away, the Lord told them to have them to set out. And the Lord took five loaves and two fishes and fed the 5,000 men besides the women and the children. But the Bible says Christ had compassion upon them. I believe Christ has compassion upon us today. The Spirit, my friends, of His mercy, the Spirit of His compassion, the Spirit of His healing the spirit of his forgiveness that he exercised time and time again when he told, you know, the woman in John, Luke chapter 7, go thy way, thy sins have been forgiven thee, thy faith has made thee whole. I believe we still have the same spirit of grace today in our life here in this world. Just called Jesus in heaven, my friends, does not mean these things aren't still taking place and going on right here on this earth. Aren't you glad about that? Because of thy good ointment. The ointment of God is a good ointment. The divine grace of God are great graces, are they not? <laughs> They're wonderful graces. This ointment was used for a number of reasons. The, all the vessels that was in the tabernacle, before they were placed in there, they were anointed with a special oil that, according to divine specifications. Before they could be put to use, they had to be anointed according to uh, the word of God. God gave instructions. God told them how to make this anointing oil. It wasn't just ordinary oil, it was anointing oil made according to divine specification. And they were to anoint the vessel before they could be put into use. What are we? According to Romans chapter 9, we're vessels of mercy, a four prepared unto glory. Romans 9 23. That's what you are. You're a vessel, a four prepared unto glory, a vessel of mercy. When will you afford prepared unto glory and the mind and purpose of God before the foundation of the world? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, for we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in earthen vessels, but before we can be beneficial in the house of God, we have to be anointed. First of all, that anointing is a picture of our new birth, of regeneration. Come over here to 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 21. And the Apostle Paul here says to Timothy, the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Therefore let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Notice that last part. We like to quote the first part, kind of conveniently leave off the second. The foundation of God, the foundation of God, what stands sure, What? how? Upon this fact, the Lord knoweth them that are his. God has a people he calls his and he knows who they are. Let him, therefore, that nameth the name of Christ, if you walk in the name of Christ, then Paul says, depart from iniquity, live like you, like you belong to Christ, in other words. He says, for in every great house there are vessels of honor and dishonor. In every great house there's vessels of gold and silver and vessels of wood and um, something else. Anyway, <laughs> and he says, some vessels under honor some under dishonor. He says, "Therefore, we are sanctified, with you know, to be meat for the uh, and to meat for the master's use. If we're going to be beneficial, to be used in the master's service, we need to be vessels of gold and silver, not of wood. We need vessels of honor, not dishonor. We need to, if we name the name of Christ, then let us depart." He says, "From iniquity." Before those vessels could be used, they had to be anointed with the special anointing oil that God had given unto them. Sometimes it's always used for refreshing purposes. I believe that you see that when Mary came to the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 12, after he'd raised her brother from the dead in John chapter 11, you come to John chapter 12, and you're going to find where Mary anointed the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving him a spiritual refreshment, or excuse me, a natural refreshment from his, from his dusty and tired walk. It also was an act, of course, of devotion and love that she had for the Savior. In Matthew chapter 26, you're going to find where uh, a Mary, another Mary anointed the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 12 is feet. John uh, 26 is his head. Now, who's the head of the church? The Lord Jesus Christ is. And uh, we have the feet, we have the head. But I come to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to find where Joseph Arimathea comes to Pilate and begs the body of Christ, and he gives him permission to take the body down from the cross. And then he's joined. For the th- Here's the third time in John's gospel, the third time we find a man by the name of Nicodemus comes to our attention. John chapter 3, John 7, now John chapter 19. Nicodemus comes and joins up with Joseph Pharmathea. And what does Nicodemus bring, bring to the situation? It says he had myrrh and alloys, a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pound weight. A hundred pounds, that's a lot, of, that's a lot isn't it? It, takes, it would take a lot of myrrh and alloys to weigh a hundred pounds. But he brings a hundred pounds worth, and it says, and they took that and wrapped his body, the body of Christ in fine linen and then they placed it into the barred tomb. His entire body from head to toe has been anointed. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 26 when the disciples questioned why was this ointment not sold for you know, 300 pits and given to the poor, the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked Judas' Iscariot and those that joined in with him and said, the poor you have with you always, uh, but me you have not. He says, what this woman has done, she has anointed my body for my burying. She anointed his body for his burying. Sometimes oil, this anointing oil, was used for medicine purposes. You read of the um, Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, how the, the priest saw the man that was had been beaten by thieves and left half dead, and they passed on the other side. Then you had the Levite, and saw him passed on the other side. And then here comes a Samaritan, whom the Jews hated. <laughs> and this Samaritan, he didn't see when he saw this man beaten and left half dead. He just saw a man in need. That's what he saw. He didn't see a Jew. He saw a man. He saw a man that was beaten, left half dead, in need of help. And he took him and put him on his own beast and took him down to the end. But when he put him before he put him on his beast, the Bible says that he, uh, you know, he. Uh, ministered to his wounds. And what did he put in there? He put in wine and oil in there. Wine and oil. In James, we find in James chapter 5 where it says, If any be sick, let him call for the elders. Let him anoint him with oil and lay their hands upon him and pray for him. Now James is a very literal book. I think he literally means what he says. But I know that oil in the Old Testament day, or excuse me, in the biblical days, New Testament day as well, was used oftentimes to treat wounds, oftentimes to treat illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. And so when people call for the elders today, I have literally did what James says, but I personally believe it means you take all the medicine the doctors are prescribing to you, and you call for the elders, let them lay hands upon you and pray for you, and he says, he shall be healed. See, that anointing oil had many, many profitable usages in biblical days. I I like this expression found over in Psalms 104, verse 15. It mentions wine, it mentions oil, it mentions bread. It says, wine makes the heart glad, and and bread strengthens the heart, and oil makes the face shine. (laughs) I believe I've seen that in people. I, I remember a man in particular I'm thinking of right now, many years ago. He attended church for a while, obviously he loved the Lord, showed signs of rejoicing in the gospel in Jesus Christ. But there was times, uh, there were, I mean, uh, in any way, but there came a time, what I want to say, that he united with the church. And I told my dad after that, whenever, every time you saw him, he looked like a different man. His face just shined differently than it did before. He was obedient to the Lord. He didn't what the Lord had him to do. When he was baptized in Father Lord and discipleship, it made a change in his life, a difference in his life. I believe, my friends, the, the gospel is like oil. It makes our face shine. The gospel like bread. It strengthens our heart. And the gospel is like wine, my friends. It makes our heart glad in Mary, does it not? She said, because of thy good ointments. Because of thy good ointments. Not just ordinary ointments. These are good ointments. Because of thy good ointments, it was thy love last Sunday, it's thy good ointments today. Said thy thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Thy name is like thy name. Because of thy good ointments, thy name is like ointment poured forth. What about the name of the Lord? What does the name of Christ mean to you today? You know, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel tells Joseph, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for that was the conceived of hers of the Holy Ghost. She shall bear forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When you hear the name Jesus, what do you think about? That word Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. (laughs) That's why some many hymns has the name Jesus in there. And two verses later in verse 23 it says his name is Emmanuel which means God with us. Is that not like a sweet aroma, a sweet smell to you experientially in your life when you hear the name of Jesus? Take the name of Jesus, the hymn writer says, with you. Take it with you. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and Greece to bear. When you think about the name Jesus it ought to stir your heart. It only won't make you draw near to the Lord. As James says, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to thee when you hear the name Jesus and know what it signifies. In Isaiah 96, it says, us a child is born, lest a son is given. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. When you hear these names, is that not like a sweet-smelling sever? Uh, Is that not uh, a sweet fragrance uh, into your soul and your heart? It ought to be. If it's not, something's wrong. We need to have a conversation. You got a spiritual problem. It ought to just strengthen our heart and refresh our heart. All these are wonderful names, are they not? Jesus uh, told his uh, disciple, when you pray, you pray in this manner, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Psalms 1, uh, 11, verses 8 and 9. He said, He had commanded His covenant forever. Holy and reverend is His name. His name is reverend. His name is hallowed. His name is Jesus. His name is wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. When I hear these names, my friends, it lifts my soul and strengthens my heart and edifies me and gives me courage and strength to face the challenges of another day. What a a wonderful name it is to hear the name Jesus. If you understand what Jesus really means, right? You understand the Jesus of the Bible. I hear the word Jesus used about a man. I can't find him in the word of God. I can't find the Jesus. Some people preach in the Word of God. I don't find a weak Jesus. I don't find a begging Jesus. I don't find a a Jesus wringing his hands in heaven. I find a man, my friends, in heaven that accomplished the will of the Father when he was here on this earth. And that was to obtain and secure the salvation of the elect of God. And he did it completely and totally. And one day the family of God will be in glory with him. That's the kind of Jesus I'm talking about. That's the kind of Jesus I'm speaking about. That's why we baptize how in his name. Acts 2, 38. Acts 2 and 38. Repent me baptized, Peter said to those Jews on that occasion, on that, that message of Pentecost. Repent me baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins and shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What a blessing it is when you walk in obedience to the Lord and you receive that gift of the Holy Spirit just like came upon the Savior who said, this is my beloved Son. We baptize in His name. Matthew 28. 18 and 19, the Lord said, all powers give me up both in heaven and also in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit and go on and teach them to observe all things which I've commanded you and I'll go with you all the way to the end of the world. You know, Paul asked the Corinthians a question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're going to find where the Corinthians were divided. Some Corinthians were following after Paul, some after Cephas, of course it was Peter. Some after Apollos, a man that was eloquent in the scriptures and mighty in the scriptures. And some after Christ, they were divided. These were wonderful gifts God had given them, but they were not to be worshipped. Paul asked this question, was Paul crucified for you? Why would you follow after a man that wasn't crucified for you? And then he asked this, were you baptized in the name of Paul? If you were baptized in the name of a man, your baptism is meaningless. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ points you to the complete and total salvation in Jesus. That's why we baptize in His name. I've never baptized anybody in my name. God forbid. Baptize in the name of the blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of thy good ointment, says thy name is thy love, thy ointment is thy name. Thy name, he says, is as ointment poured forth. It reminds me of Psalms 133. It said, uh, How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. For it's like the ointment that was poured upon Aaron, on the head of Aaron, it ran down his beard and down his garments, down to his feet. In other words, the ointment, my friends, that was put upon Aaron and his sons for the priesthood started here. It finally found its way all the way down to the bottom, did it not? And so it is that the graces of, the grace of the anointing of Jesus Christ who's the head of the church will find its way all the way down to all those believers in Christ, and especially those in his blessed church. Because of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. His name, what does it mean in his name? His name is hallowed, his name is referenced. his name is holy. In Revelation chapter 19, you know, I gave you a picture a while ago of the Lord Jesus Christ riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass, riding into Jerusalem triumphantly, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Let me give you another picture. We come to Revelation chapter 19 and I find Christ riding upon a white horse now. Christ is riding upon a white horse. There's many crowns upon his head. His eyes are like flames of fire. Uh, his, call, his name is called Faithful and True. It says he has a name that nobody knows but himself, but he also had a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word, W-O-R-D, capital D. the called the Word of God. And he's riding upon that horse. Different scene, isn't it? A triumphant scene after his death, burial, and resurrection. Now he's riding upon that great horse. And it says "Then he had a name written uh, on the vesture and on his thigh. His name is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. When you get a view of Jesus in that way, is it not like ointment? Good ointment? The sever of good ointment? A good smell? Good sever? In your spiritual smell? <laughs> is it not? She praises Him. She loves Him. This is somebody who's had experience with these ordinances before. This is not something she's just thought about. And it might be good. She's had experience in times past. Every Lord's Day, we come here to Bethel Primitive Baptist Church to worship God. And I try to pray for His presence. I try to pray that He'd open up the doors of understanding, our eyes and minds and hearts of understanding, and we could have His divine presence, experience some of these divine graces of God, that we might have a spiritual, experiential anointing in that regard here, as we think about the blessed name of God. That we might consider what Peter said in Acts 4:11 and 12. He said, "This is a stone which you builders set it not." Jesus Christ was the headstone of the corner and the builders, Jewish leaders that day, uh, you know, uh, rejected him. But he says, This man is there is salvation in this man, there's no name given in heaven and earth whereby men must be saved, must be saved, but the name of Jesus. There's only one Savior. You know, in the Old Testament day, the Bible says that God sent Saviors, plural, to Israel. And that could be Moses and Joshua and all them and Gideon. Uh, they will deliver us, in other words, of Israel in that day. But I'm telling you, when it comes to the work of, of salvation, there's just one. Just one. His name is Jesus. Ought to, it, you ought to experience a sweet smell this morning when you hear the name Jesus. Give thanks. Ephesians 5 speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks unto the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks in His name. We baptize in His name. We sing in His name. We pray in His name. We preach in His name. We leave the house of God today. There's just one name you need to be thinking about. And it's not Brother Lawrence. It's Jesus. Christ. The Son of God.